Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Oh, well, welcome to all our first movers around the globe. Fantastic to have you with us. And there are plenty of moves ahead this hour, including President Biden, Heading to Northern Ireland as the U.S. tries to contain its damaging document leak. Global investors still looking for signs of a true inflation peak. Bitcoin back above $30,000 and on a fresh winning streak. Plus, the IMF out with its new global economic outlook as we speak. And the forecast looking a little more bleak. Just breaking the International Monetary Fund lowering its global growth targets once again slightly. It's the tone, I think, that matters more than the numbers. Its latest report saying, quote, the fog around the world economic outlook has thickened, a stark contrast to its more encouraging forecast earlier this year. What's clearly changed over the last three months is stress on the banks and in the banking sector. And the IMF is now saying that threats to financial market stability are still very real, posing tough choices and trade-offs for policymakers that have been raising interest rates to battle still rising inflation. All this amid the ongoing uncertainties of the still raging Ukraine war, of course, too. We'll discuss the huge challenges facing global economies later on the programme with Spain's first deputy prime minister and finance minister, Nadia Calvino, who is attending the spring meetings at the IMF this week. Investors also grappling with all these global uncertainties with the main focus, the new U.S. consumer inflation data out on Wednesday. For now, U.S. futures pretty unsettled to unchanged. Europe, though, trading higher after the long Easter break and a positive Asia handover to Japanese stocks boosted by news that famed investor Warren Buffett is looking to sink more investment cash into the country. A nice vote, I think, of confidence as its new central bank governor takes the helm. So as always, lots to discuss. But first, to the IMF, a foggy economic forecast, financial risk shifting firmly to the downside, the new IMF Global Economic Outlook makes unsettling reading indeed. Christine Romans joins us now on this. Christine, great to have you with us. I, I wonder if you agree. It's, it's sort of less about the tinkering of the numbers and more about the tone shift, particularly given what they were saying in Davos just three months ago. I absolutely agree. And you never want to see those words, threats to financial market stability. Mm. When we have been talking about scarring from the pandemic, a war in Ukraine, we've been talking about uh, supply chains being tangled and starting to loosen. And now you enter this new, almost a month now, this new element into what has been a period of shifting narratives, Julia, that I can't really recall in my career, what we've gone through over the past uh, three years or so. A growth slowdown from 3.4% this year to 2.8% next year. That is a 0.1% downgrade, which isn't really a lot, but it's the wording here I think that is so fascinating. Uncertainty is high. The balance of risks has shifted firmly to the downside so long as the financial sector remains unsettled. That's the warning on growth here that I think we need to note. The IMF also noting this sluggishness uh, in the global system for, from so many things, scarring from the pandemic, 
aging workforces, geopolitical uh, fragmentation, Britain's decision to leave the EU. I mean, that's in here as well. Uh, Tensions between the United States and China and, of course, the ongoing uh, uh, slaughter, really, in Europe and a hot war in Europe as Russia, uh, a year on now, more than a year on, had invaded uh, Ukraine. All of these things are in this big soup that has turned into a metaphor. You read it earlier, uh, this fogginess, hard to see through the fog here, makes makes predicting what will happen next very, very difficult. Yeah, I was about to say it's a sort of a kitchen sink moment for all the issues, but it's more of a bath or a vat to use uh, your soup terminology here as well. Um, I do think honing in on the banking sector is important in the United States in particular, too, because you and I were questioning to what extent we see banks tightening lending standards. And I think the data that we've had from, from the last two weeks is incredibly eye-opening, perhaps not unexpected in light of the turbulence that we saw. The question is to what extent that carries on and it weighs um, more effectively on the on the U.S. economy and then has a knock-on effect yeah. to jobs because that jobs data still strong. I know. And when we say the economy added just 236,000 jobs, I kind of chuckle because 236,000 jobs in normal times is still very, very solid job growth. Maybe that falls off a cliff. Maybe it doesn't. The other question I think, Julia, that's kind of interesting is, can you have tightening in the financial sector, which is an obvious byproduct of this period of uncertainty we've gone through that helps do the Fed's job for it uh, without having instability in the banking sector. Everyone's sort of hunting around for these points of vulnerabilities. It might be that you have tightening, but you still have under uh, underlying stability. That would be the best, I think, of both worlds. Yeah. Speaking of a better world, then, on a final brighter note, um, the IMF did say interest rates in advanced economies are likely to revert to their pre-pandemic levels once the current spell of high inflation is passed. Yep. Um, they don't say when it's going to be passed, quite frankly. But um, right. Yeah, everyone feels happier back at zero, apparently. I know. And there are others, though, who will, who will argue that those days of, of basically zero interest rates are, are over yes. for the time being and that they were never natural in the first place. They were a byproduct of another crisis. We will get very key U.S. inflation data later this week, Tuesday and Wednesday, the PPI and the CPI. That'll be incredibly important. But, you know, when I talk to my sources, they're really going to be zeroing in, I think, almost more pointedly on bank earnings later this this week. Um, that's what they really want to drill into what's happening uh, with lending and with financial uh, stability. I think the feeling is here the worst of the inflation crisis is behind us. The Fed might have one more rate hike to try to tackle any kind of lingering inflation here. And then they're hoping, hoping that things can start uh, receding quickly in terms of the inflation story. But who knows? The outlook is foggy. <laughs> yes. Mystifying, one might say. Thank goodness we have you. Kristen <laughs> nice to Thank see you. Thank you so much. Okay, the Pentagon scrambling to contain the fallout from a major leak of classified documents, as we were discussing in Monday's show. The information includes how the U.S. spies not only on its enemies, but also its close allies, such as South Korea. Meanwhile, Seoul downplaying the leaked documents, saying a considerable amount of the information is, quote, fabricated. Paula Hancock has the details. 
The presidential office here in South Korea is questioning the validity of some documents that appear to have been leaked from the Pentagon. In a presidential office statement this Tuesday, they said that they claim considerable amount of the information has been, quote, fabricated. They gave no more details, though. We have asked for more clarification as to what they believe uh, has been fabricated. Uh, we do know that uh, these documents that were leaked appear to, to show the internal conversations between senior South Korean officials about a potential deal to sell ammunition to the United States. Now, within these uh, these leaked documents, it appears there was concern that the US would then pass that ammunition on to Ukraine. And South Korea has a, a long-standing policy of not giving lethal aid to countries at war. Now, there was also a conversation this Tuesday morning between Lloyd Austin, the US Secretary of Defence, with his South Korean counter part Lee Jong-sup, the South Korean side, say that that was called for by the US side to discuss this issue uh, as well. They also claim in a statement from the presidential office that both ministers of defence agreed that some of this was fabricated. But it's important to note that we only have this from the South Korean side at this point. The Pentagon has not commented or given any kind of readout on that conversation. And it would be different to what we have heard from US officials uh, in the past. Now, the opposition here in South Korea has raised concerns about what has happened, some saying it is a clear violation of South Korea's sovereignty. If what the U.S. media reported is true, it's very disappointing as it damages the trust-based South Korea and U.S. alliance. I hope the South Korean government is correct about the documents being forged. It seems difficult to rule out the possibility of wiretapping. There are also concerns among some opposition leaders about whether this is just the tip of the iceberg and whether there may be more information that is yet to be released. The timing is tricky. The South Korean president, Yoon Suk-yeol, is just two weeks away from travelling to Washington and attending a state dinner with US President Joe Biden. His state visit is certainly something that the presidential office here would rather that everybody be talking about. So there certainly does appear to be on both sides, the US and South Korea, a fair bit of damage control. Paula Hancock's CNN Seoul. And back to the United States now and another deadly mass shooting already the 146th this year. At least five people lost their lives at the old National Bank in Louisville, Kentucky, after a 25-year-old employee opened fire during a staff meeting on Monday. Adrian Brodus has more on the investigation as a community remembers the victims. The search for motive begins in Louisville, Kentucky, after police say a 25-year-old bank employee shot his co-workers, leaving at least five dead. The suspect shot at officers. We then returned fire and stopped that threat. Police shot and killed the gunman, Connor Sturgeon. Investigators say he was still firing his AR-15-style rifle when officers arrived. The shooter had worked at Old National Bank for more than a year, but a law enforcement source says Sturgeon was recently told he would be fired. The source says Sturgeon wrote a note to his parents and a friend indicating he was going to carry out a shooting at the bank. It's not clear when the note was found. I got a call from my wife panicking that she was locked in the vault. Police say the shooter live streamed the attack to Instagram. It was also streamed to a Monday morning bank meeting. Rebecca Buschetti Sims, a manager at the bank, tells CNN. 
Sims says she watched from her computer as her co-workers were gunned down in the conference room. She says she didn't work directly with the alleged shooter, but knew him to be, quote, extremely intelligent with a low-key temperament. SWAT teams raided the gunman's home Monday afternoon as officials praised the quick action of first responders. It's got to be about them and the heroic actions of everybody who responded. One of the officers who ran into the gunfire was rookie cop Nicholas Wilt, who was shot in the head and is in critical condition. We were all praying and supporting him. It was just a week and a half ago uh, that I gave him, along with the chief, his graduation diploma from the academy. One of the five victims, a senior vice president at the bank, was a close friend of the governor. Tommy Elliott helped me build my law career, helped me become governor, gave me advice on being a good dad. Welcome back to First Move. The United States declaring American journalist Evan Gershkovich wrongfully detained by Russia. The move now enables the State Department to use different ways to free him, including potential prisoner swaps. Kylie Atwood joins us now. Kylie, the hope is that this can unlock the kind of negotiations that managed to see basketball player Brittany Griner freed. The concern, of course, is that there are those still there, like Paul Whelan and his family, that haven't been successfully negotiated. What happens now? Well, that's exactly right. Now that Evan Gershkovich has been actually designated as wrongfully detained, which essentially means that the U.S. government thinks there was no legitimate reason for his arrest for the charges of espionage that he is now facing, uh, the U.S. government is going to go to work drawing on all of its resources to try and figure out a way to get him home as soon as possible. And I say that with that being the goal. Um, that is not necessarily going to happen overnight. We know that there is still a legal process to play out in Russia when it comes to uh, the process that Gershkovich is actually going through. And usually that has to actually hit a point where it's concluded to a degree before Russia engages in conversations with the United States uh, that could put options on the table, both sides, you know, putting down options to try and get him out. As you said, there have been prisoner swaps in the past. Last year, there were two Americans who were wrongfully detained in Russia, Brittany Griner and Trevor Reed, who were both released independently in individual prisoner swaps. And of course, as you said, Paul Whelan, an American who is still wrongfully detained in Russia, was left home both of those times when those two Americans were released as part of prisoner swaps. And he actually uh, just yesterday spoke with his family for the first time in about two weeks. He's been wrongfully detained in Russia for more than four years now. And he had heard the news that Evan Gurkovich had been detained as well. Of course, his concern is getting left back in Russia a third time if Gurkovich is actually you know, able to secure a deal and he isn't. But when you talk to U.S. officials in this building at the State Department, they very clearly say that they are also going to be focusing on Paul Whelan's case as they have been over the last four years. It's just a question of how to negotiate with the Russians, and they are known for being incredibly tough and challenging to understand at the negotiating table. Yes, and we've seen last-minute changes too. Kylie Atwood, thank you so much for that report there. Now, President Biden is headed to both Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland. The visit, which begins with a stop in Belfast, will commemorate the 1998 signing of the Good Friday Agreement, which helped end decades of sectarian violence in Northern Ireland. 
One issue not resolved, however, the post-Brexit economy of Northern Ireland. Our senior diplomatic editor, Nick Robertson, reports. Blindmaker Block and its boss, Cormac Diamond, are at the cutting edge of their business. We'll take orders up to 4.30 of any day and they'll be turned around the same day. And are an object lesson on beating Brexit's impact on Northern Ireland. And there's going to uh, Halle. This one's going to uh, Zolan. In the Netherlands. In the Netherlands. And then so this whole pallet is going to places in the EU. He can sell direct to the EU without the Brexit problems mainland UK companies have. You're a third country within the, uh, the European market, so there's additional paperwork and tariffs associated with selling product directly to consumers. So this is your advantage? Absolutely. The problem with getting plants from England is that the hauliers don't want to do grippage. But Brexit isn't working for everyone even with the new UK-EU Windsor Framework deal. It doesn't seem that it's going to get any easier. Um, we're now not only have we the, the, the border down the Irish Sea, we also have to adhere to all these European rules. Beth Lunny runs Saintfield Nurseries, says she'll still face a near impossible challenge to get some plants from mainland UK. There's just the, all the wee strings are being cut and we're being cast adrift and that's how it fails. In pro-British communities, the issue is totemic. The power-sharing government here is stalled over it. Yet business here is somehow powering ahead. A miraculous thing has happened. Our exports to the UK, the EU and the rest of the world are all increased, whilst the rest of the UK market has decreased. But political sensitivities are not Brexit's only challenge here. Better business is putting a squeeze on Labour. US mining giant Terex, which first invested here right after the Good Friday peace agreement, and now has eight sites turning close to a billion dollars in sales last year, needs to grow their 2,000-person workforce and is taking untraditional steps. We're in massive recruitment drive and we are actively trying to recruit females into our business. So when we actually actively went out under our Female Fitter Academy, we were very successful in attracting women into the workforce. So this is the next generation of blind production. Blind maker Cormac Diamond has a solution too. All robots. Yes, largely robots. Uh, and the type of uh, employee that we would see in the future state will be, have the skills relating to advanced manufacturing techniques. So successful is breaking into the US blind market, selling the robots, not the blinds. So this is where the future is going to be for you, more Absolutely. This automated Absolutely. System. Replica systems of this here deployed around the world will ma help manage it on a day-to-day -day basis. Business groups estimate that for every job generated in advanced manufacturing, another three are created in the wider economy. And right now in Northern Ireland, one in every four families is estimated to rely on manufacturing for their income. The political issue in play is business delivering more Brexit winners than losers. The answer to that likely seen at the ballot box next month. 
And Nick Robertson joins us now from Belfast. Nick, we'll come back to that because that was a, a fascinating report. And I think it's important to tie the, the sort of politics to the economics and dissatisfaction or satisfaction. But I believe we've just learned that there's a public safety operation underway in Derry after a suspicious device was found. Can we talk about that first? What more do we know? Yeah, the police have gone into a cemetery in Derry. This is where a parade, a Republican, dissident Republican group was parading yesterday. They're the, they are the political wing of the new IRA. That's what the police say. Um, and that neighborhood is very much in the thrall of that group that call themselves the IRA. There are big IRA signs around there, signs showing gunmen at work in, the, in that neighborhood. It was a very contentious parade yesterday. Petrol bombs were thrown at the police. We were in that cemetery and there was a call at that cemetery for young people to join the IRA. But before they left the cemetery, a lot of the young men there put up umbrellas, disappeared behind a building, set fire to something. Now, the police had surveillance helicopters in the air, surveillance drones. Now the police have gone back into that cemetery today and said that they found a suspicious device. This could be contentious, of course, and could develop into further uh, outbreaks of violence through, through the day because of the contention between the pro-IRA supporters in that community uh, and the police themselves, Julia. Yeah, and of course, it's just hours before President Biden um, arrives for, for his visit to um, both the North, of course, um, and the Republic as well, as we mentioned. Um, Nick, we'll continue to watch headlines on that and, and further details. But for now, I want to go back to the, the report that, that you mentioned. And I suppose there's no surprise that there's a correlation between those that are facing perhaps the most challenging economic circumstances and not necessarily benefiting um, post the Brexit negotiations to uh, political discontent. Yeah, it's, it's really telling that that community where the police operation is underway now is very economically deprived. But just two miles away, the, uh, the, you saw in that report there, uh, the Terex factory um, doing hugely well, uh, very well, so well they're expanding. So there's a real need for properly and adequately trained uh, new members of staff in that plant and they're trying to improve uh, uh, training in the community and that's something that President Biden will be talking about and doing here at a ribbon cutting uh, ceremony at a new university campus here in Belfast. So his message and the message of politicians is let's close that economic gap, let's get more jobs going, let's train young people into those vocational skills that are required in heavy engineering or robotics uh, technologies as well. Let's get them trained, let's get the money flowing into the communities. And I think you see the juxtaposition there in Derry, that community, one of the poorest in that city, but it highlights if you can get the money in, it lifts people above a threshold and they can get better aspirations in their life. That's an idea um, and it's a tough challenge to meet. But I think the expectations here, among politicians at least, are that Northern Ireland can do better and prosper and its economy is getting better. But just a, a sub-note to that, 25 years since the Good Friday Agreement, the highway that connects Belfast over the 60, 70 miles to Derry, only this past week has had lanes opened as a dual carriageway rather than a single carriageway, a little bit of motorway. But that shows you how slow it is to get those vital economic, physical connections here. A main highway between Belfast and Northern Ireland's second city. It's just been so slow to happen. 25 years. I mean, peace 
comes in the form of hope. And to your point, that's based on economic opportunity, first and foremost. That's something the EU, the Eurozone and the UK need to, to think harder about. Um, Nick, great to have you with us. Thank you. Great to have you there. Welcome back to First Move. And as you've been hearing, the International Monetary Fund says there's a fog enveloping the world economic outlook and it's thickened with uncertainty. But when it comes to Spain, the IMF expects that nation to continue to outperform the eurozone as a whole with stronger relative growth and lower inflation. The government in Madrid has also moved to cushion consumers throughout this period from the worst of the price pressures through windfall taxes on both banks and energy providers. That's also raised some questions, though, about the government's commitment to commerce. So clearly much to discuss. And I started by asking the first deputy prime minister and finance minister what the IMF's challenging outlook will mean for Spain. Well, obviously, these meetings are taking place at a time of high uncertainty and market volatility. As the war in Ukraine goes on and, and uh, financial conditions are tightening throughout the world, we are in an environment which is challenging. Uh, nevertheless, the Spanish economy is showing remarkable resilience. We had very strong growth in 2021 and 2022. GDP grew by more than 5.5 percent. The first quarter of this year continues with a very positive trend and uh, all institutions are revising upwards their forecasts for growth and downwards their forecasts for inflation, which is positive, positive news and a positive outlook for 2023. Yeah, you're an outperformer in many respects when I look at this IMF report. To your point, stronger growth than many of your other Eurozone country um, members, but also lower inflation. I mean, you could argue at this point that if the Eurozone had your level of inflation with the measures that you've taken to support consumers, um, the European Central Bank could do rather less than more, perhaps. Is that a bit frustrating to you? Well, you know, I wouldn't like to comment on monetary policy being the competence of the European Central Bank. But indeed, Spain was the first to single out the concern about energy prices. We have taken very effective measures since 2021 already to try to curb inflation and in particular to moderate the increase of energy prices, thus bringing increased competitiveness to Spanish companies also that are gaining market share, even in, a, in such a challenging global context. And I think that the sooner we, we curb inflation and we moderate it, the better in terms of the sustainability of our growth. We'll come back to that. The, the measures that you took in the, in the, on the business sector with the banks and, and some of the utilities too, and some of the structural reforms, which I think are important, particularly for the labour market at this moment. But there was a period, and you've mentioned it, uh, with regards to the financial volatility, where investors certainly were looking around the world and they were looking for the next weakest link. What's, I think, the message, the important message to investors today and to citizens, I think, too, about the strength of the Spanish banks and even in a greater slowdown scenario, their ability to continue to lend, particularly to small businesses and consumers? Yeah, the Spanish banking sector has undergone a very in-depth restructuring in the last 10 years. And right now, they are in a, in a quite strong position. Uh, the governor of the Bank of Spain, who's also here in Washington these days, he's spoken loud and clear, signaling the strength, uh, both in terms of solvency, but also liquidity of Spanish banks. So we do not see these as, as um, a source of concern right now. But obviously, throughout the world, we have to, to follow this quite closely as financial conditions are tightening, interest rates are rising, and this is going to have an impact on the real economy. 
As we head into the summer, obviously critical, the, the tourism season, uh, the importance of the health of some of these small businesses, and to your point, the likelihood perhaps that we do see some tightening of, of lending standards in particular. What are your expectations? Well, in Spain, we have a quite unique situation because even if uh, private sector uh, conditions are, are tightening and, and uh, credit is slowing down throughout the world, in Spain, we have a unique situation derived from the European Recovery Plan. Spain is the front runner in the implementation of the next generation EU investments and structural reforms. This is having a very important counter-cyclical impact that explains partly the strong growth that we have registered since 2021. And it is also uh, conducting or driving a structural modernization of our economy, which is also going to have a very positive impact down the line, increasing potential growth in the coming years. So all in all, we think that the uh, financing conditions for the private sector are relatively more positive in Spain than maybe in other countries uh, around the world. The only comparison I could make where I think you perhaps fare more poorly than many other nations is the unemployment rate in Spain, which remains relatively high. And I know, and you and, and I've spoken to the Prime Minister too about the structural reforms that you've taken. How quickly do you expect to see those feeding further in and enabling you to, to bring that rate down? Indeed, unemployment has been the main imbalance dragging growth in Spain for decades. Uh, we implemented a very significant labour market reform last year. And in just one year, the results are quite impressive. They are outperforming our, our best expectations, frankly because we see that there are 1.1 million persons more working in Spain right now than before the pandemic. Also, the quality of the jobs is improving. And this means that we have 20.5 million persons working in Spain. This is a, an all-time record. Uh, the young uh, unemployed, youth unemployment is also going down. It's at historical minima. And we have to continue this trend, also increasing jobs in the new green and digital economy, which are future-proof. The, the uh, results so far are extremely positive, and we hope to continue on that trend. Uh, in the first quarter of the year, the trend continues to be very positive. It's even accelerating. A good sign to say, and we'll continue to track that. Um, I think part, and we've discussed it already, of, of what's allowed you to be more flexible in terms of cushioning um, consumers, particularly, and businesses from, from some of the pressures that we've seen on pricing has been the, the windfall taxes on, on banks and, and utilities. But it has created, and I think this is going to come up certainly in your discussions in, in Washington, of a sort of anti-business lean from the government. And, and that was recently reinforced by the infrastructure giant, Ferrovial, saying that it's looking at moving its headquarters to the Netherlands. Um, the government's response, perhaps, was um, as expected. I wonder if you've convinced them of the reasons to stay and, and what those outside Spain need to understand about the government's approach, I think, to business. An investment. Well, I would. These are two separate issues. I think the most um, effective measure we have undertaken to to moderate inflation has undoubtedly been the uh, Iberian solution. The fact that we have lower energy prices as compared to the rest of European countries, we have a higher renewables penetration, and that is giving a, a competitive edge to European companies right now. And that I think should be singled out as a very important factor, attracting foreign investment into Spain. Uh, 
uh, at unprecedented levels right now. Now, uh, we are obviously a pro-business government and Spain has many uh, multinational companies which are based in Spain and have thrived and grown and expanded throughout the world. We are supporting them to do so. And that is why also since Ferrovial announced that they may be changing their headquarters, we engaged with the company, also with our securities market regulator, with our stock exchange to see if there would be any disadvantage to Spanish companies to have dual listing with the U.S. stock exchanges. Uh, and right this, this week, we have communicated the initial technical analysis, which confirms that there is no obstacle and that there is no disadvantage to being listed in the Spanish stock exchange. So we will continue to work with these and, and all Spanish companies to support they have the best possible access to international financial markets, of course. Right. So, so the hope is that they can have that dual listing and remain part of the um, IBEX 35, because I guess that's an ideal solution, particularly for a big company with an international business like this. You can, you can find a, a medium ground. Absolutely, absolutely. We, we have uh, expressed repeatedly our commitment to making this not only a possibility, but a reality. We want to support dual listing by Spanish companies. We want to continue to have very strong multinational companies, which are based in Spain. This is part of our strength, and we, we are committed, as is the financial markets regulator and the stock exchange, to work hand in hand with the Spanish multinationals to, to ensure that they have the best possible access to, to financial investment flows. It's a good message to send, certainly. Um, one of the other topics for discussion, no doubt, in the coming days is going to be China. And I know Prime Minister Sanchez, one of three now European leaders that's recently in Beijing for, for meetings there. There were some eyebrows raised um, after Emmanuel Macron's comments last week, suggesting that European countries shouldn't follow the US lead, particularly where relations with Taiwan and the concerns from China are concerned. I just I wonder where Spain stands on this point, on this point, do, do you stand with France and, and how do you perceive the economic benefits of China, but also the strategic competition and the complications of this relationship? Well, you know, I think we cannot just turn our back to China because it's a very important commercial partner and we have every interest, a shared interest, that they play a constructive role in putting an end to the war in Ukraine as soon as possible. Uh, I, Prime Minister Sanchez was there. He had a frank uh, and clear uh, exchange with a leader, with, with uh, Xi Jinping, and I think that that's the right way forward, you know, to engage in a manner which is mutually beneficial. China is a very big partner and we have every interest to, to engage. I would like to comment on the remarks made by the president of another, of another European country, of course, you know. But surely uh, in the meetings, in the spring meetings that we're holding in Washington this week, the uh, need to avoid uh, global market fragmentation, which would slow down growth throughout the world and weaken and, and increase the vulnerabilities uh, throughout the world, um, is, a, is also a shared interest. And I hope that we have a productive discussion on that point, too. Yeah, it certainly needs to continue to happen. Can I ask if um, data privacy and, and TikTok was discussed? I'm, I'm tapping into your digital minister hat now because obviously we've seen EU institutions ban TikTok on, on government used devices, but I believe so far the Spanish government haven't. Can I ask where you stand on that and, and whether that was discussed?
the concern about privacy, data privacy, data protection, uh, and and the respect of our values and, and rights in the new digital world more generally, this is not a new concern. Actually, for, since we took office in 2018, we have been working to ensure that we drive a humanistic digitalization, you know, one where citizens can have confidence in the tools, in the mechanisms, in the algorithms that are behind our screens. So this is not a new issue to us, and I think we have to we have developed a charter of digital rights in Spain that has inspired the work which is ongoing at the European and, and global level. Also, we're working with our Latin American uh, brother uh, co um, countries to work on a, on a charter of digital rights. And I think we need a we need to to accelerate work so that we can have a framework throughout the world that gives us confidence and can continue to drive a, a digitalization which is to the benefit of of human kind. Now, some countries have expressed concerns on TikTok, others are expressing concerns on ChatGPT. Uh, and that, I think, confirms that it is not one tool or one uh, application or one social medium uh, or another. It's in general the need to ensure that digitalization is protecting our privacy, protecting our uh, data rights and, uh, and our democratic values. Okay, still to come here on First Move, we're taking out the trash with a Canadian startup's answer to the challenges of waste disposal units. The CEO of Sapura Home joins us after the break. Welcome back to First Move. What started as a dinner party disaster turned into a kitchen gadget with plans to reshape food waste in the home. After Viktor Nikolov's garbage disposal broke during a party, he quickly discovered a number of issues surrounding disposals. Soon after, Sapora Home was born. The company's new appliance, called Sapora, sits under customer sinks in place of a traditional garbage waste disposal unit. The system attaches to the bottom of the drain, separating solids from liquids, with a sensor that detects if something like a fork is in the bucket. Its goal is to make composting easier while working towards a more sustainable environment. The Canadian startup also recently rose more than $4 million worth of funding led by sink maker Blanco to boost production and delivery of its product and they plan to start shipping this summer. Joining us now is Victor Nicolas. He's the co-founder and CEO of Sapora Home. Victor, fantastic to have you on the show. So just explain in your mind the problem that you think this fixes and how the system works. Yeah. Uh, well, first, thanks for having me on, Julia. Uh, but uh, yeah, well, to be honest, I started this because I was a little lazy. Uh, <laughs> I did want to compost uh, food waste at home. Uh, I did want to separate everything uh, from my garbage disposal and the trash. Uh, so I did it, but I had that smelly bin on my counter and I hated it. <laughs> so out of laziness, I wanted to build a device that yeah, really just did all the work for me. I'd push a button, did all the separation, solid liquids, put in a bucket and keep that bucket hidden from me under my sink and block the odors. And I just, yeah, wouldn't need to deal with it until I had to throw it out in my uh, curbside pickup. 
I love the fact that you keep using the term bucket because when I read this, I was like, why is this better than a bucket? So you have to explain <laughs> that because I think I know a lot of people who've had waste disposal systems and they've they've literally trashed them for various reasons. Blocked plumbing, I think is one of the big issues. Inability to handle fat, blades, which is also a concern. Talk to me about that and smell, of course, too. How have you got around that? Yeah, uh, well, sure, I'll start with the smell. Uh, the That was a big component of it. I absolutely hated the smell. Fruit flies, oh man, those, uh, those are the worst. Uh, so it was, this is a technology, it's been out there uh, already, but we were able to kind of use it in, in our bin as well in an in a innovative way. So it's, we have a carbon filter that sits on top of it and that traps all, in all the odors. But we didn't want to have like giant fans or anything or a super high powered device pushing all that uh, air through that carbon filter. So the way that we designed it is once the food waste starts to generate odors inside, that's when it really heats up inside of the bin. Uh, and that naturally creates a upwards airflow. So we have air intake holes at the bottom of the bin that sucks in cool air and everything just naturally flows through that carbon filter at the top which just prevents all odors from escaping. Okay, so most people... And there was... Yeah, I was just yeah, going to ask uh, you, just because we're watching a video of you throwing vegetables into a sink, most people are running water at the same time as they're throwing peelings and things into a sink. How does it actually separate the water and prevent the bucket filling with water at the same time? Because I believe you can keep putting things in here for around a month based on a traditional family's use yeah, that's right. Uh, so it's kind of, uh, you can think of it as a reverse juicer. Uh, I don't know if you have one of those at home, the the kind of uh, screw, uh, conveyor screw inside uh, a filter. Uh, so it's essentially what we're doing under your sink, but uh, in reverse order. So we keep the solids and get rid of the liquids. Okay. And then I cut you off rudely before, just as you were about to tell me how it handles fat and ice cubes and fingers. <laughs> Um, yeah, so uh, fats, solid fats, those are fine. So same idea. If you put it down there, it will not go through our filter. Our filter catches 99.9% .9 of everything that enters there. So it has to be very, very tiny to get by. So that's even better than just normal sinks. Um, so yeah, if you pour fat down your, your sink, it's going to catch it, separate that into the bin. If it's anything liquid, uh, you do just have to open the, the bin under your sink and just pour it directly in there. And okay, uh, so, yeah, fingers, yeah. forks, anything. Yeah, that's uh, that's the fun part. That's uh, also what I hated about uh, a garbage disposal that I had a while back, which ended up breaking. Um, yeah, it's dropping a fork in there is a nightmare. It sounds the worst. <laughs> it's super loud and stuff. So we really wanted to fix that. So what we've done with uh, with Sapira is that it catches it automatically. If you've got a fork in there, um, it'll stop back up, let you take it out, and then it'll keep running afterwards. But it can give you a pinch. So I, I, I read the instructions <laughs> and the installation instructions as well. And it says, don't still don't put your fingers down there because it can give you a pinch. So yes, it all I've sounds, done it, accident, it all sounds, it. yeah, don't do it. Um, very plausible until I get to the price, Victor. And then I had a complete shocker because I was looking at traditional waste disposal units and I mean, you can take your pick somewhere between $120 and $950 in the United States, the average around $250. This is $800.
tell me how we got to that price because that seems extraordinarily expensive. Yeah. Um, well, like you said, there's uh, yeah, those garbage disposals vary from a wide range of uh, prices. If you're if you're buying a higher end garbage disposal, um, you know that's that's where we fit in. So we're we're definitely definitely a premium device. Uh, but uh, you, you're not just getting that separator component when you when you buy a Sapira. You're not getting the part that does all the work for you underneath your sink. You're also getting that bin that attaches to it and it blocks the odors. Uh, the device is smart as well. Connects to your Wi-Fi. The we didn't want to do this at first, but saw so many benefits in doing that just because we get to push over the air updates. And what that means is that the device will improve just like a Tesla, I guess, just it'll just keep improving over time. Even after you bought it, you don't need to buy anything else for it. But you don't actually get compost from that. You still have to take the vegetables out each month and, and sort of pass that on to be made into compost. Is that correct or am I, am I wrong on that? So sadly, most people do not compost at home and we wanted to build a device that kind of solves people's problems at home everywhere. If you want to compost it, you can start the composting process inside the bin and then finish in, in your backyard. But we find that most people will just uh, get rid of it in their curbside pickup uh, organics bin. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. Victor, you're going to have to come back and talk to us uh, about what demand you're seeing when this um, when they hits the market. And um, I would add to those list of financial benefits, plumber fee savings, which are extortionate, quite frankly. So that's a contributing factor maybe too. Um, great to chat to you, the founder and CEO of Sabora Home. Thank you. Welcome back to First Move and a slightly tepid Tuesday feel to Wall Street today. The major average is consolidating. I think it's a reflection of some of the nervousness, perhaps ahead of tomorrow's key inflation data. And, of course, as Christine Romans was telling us, bank earnings later this week, too. Bitcoin bulls, though, not to be deterred and certainly out in full force. The cryptocurrency currently up more than 3% and back above $30,000 per Bitcoin for the first time since June of last year. Crypto bulls crediting ongoing inflation fears as the spark for the latest rally. Ethereum seeing solid gains too ahead of a fresh network upgrade later this week. And that's not the only notable news from the world of tech. Alibaba unveiling its long-awaited generative AI product to rival ChatGPT. Alibaba, which recently announced that it's splitting into six separate units, will integrate its new AI technologies into all the company's apps. Beijing's response, as you would imagine, cautious. The government drafting new measures that would place checks on chatbots and perhaps delay the Alibaba rollout. And finally, looking to start over in a new country, a survey by Expat Group Internationals has just released a list of the places where it's easiest to start a new life abroad. Out of 52 locations reviewed, number one was Bahrain. The survey said it's easy to get a visa, find housing, access essential services online and get around without speaking the languages. In second place was the United Arab Emirates, where easy communication makes it simple to settle in. And rounding out the top three, Singapore, which offers expats a highly digitised lifestyle and English is one of its official languages. Just for context, Germany was last on the list, just behind Japan and China. I'm not sure who voted. No more comments on that. And that's it for the show. Connect the World with Becky Anderson is up next, and I'll see you tomorrow.
When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So, you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.